0: So what Shai and I did is, to start with, we did not learn about insurance. We actually pretty consciously resisted the temptation to look up insurance on Wikipedia and start reading. (laughs) And instead we took some um, office space uh, with a whiteboard and we spent a couple of months just asking ourselves the question of, you know, first principles thinking, what do we not like about insurance? How would we build an experience that we felt good about?
1: I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is Secret Leaders. We uncover the raw personal stories of the world's greatest business people, the key turning points, biggest challenges, and most valuable lessons from their journeys, so you'll get inspiration and tangible ideas to succeed at life. Today's secret leader is Daniel Schreiber, the co-founder and CEO of Lemonade. The insurtech startup launched in 2016 and floated on the New York Stock Exchange last July in the midst of the pandemic, where its valuation more than doubled on its first day of trading. Stay tuned to hear some fascinating insights on disrupting mature markets, playing politics with the establishment, going public and being an outspoken CEO, especially on sensitive subjects. Now, first, a bit of background. Daniel is a lawyer by training, but after practicing for only a year, he followed in his grandpa's entrepreneurial footsteps by starting a company. But whilst his granddad was in furniture, Daniel was in tech. Now, he stayed with his startup until 2004 before selling it for no personal gain in what he described as a fire sale. He then moved on to the company that would eventually become the memory giant Sandisk. It was during an intensive business course that the idea of disrupting the insurance industry first came into Daniel's head. Alongside Shy Winninger, he founded Lemonade and set about to change the face of the insurance industry. Okay, Dan, but what is Lemonade? Well, I hear you. Let's let Daniel tell you all about it.
0: Lemonade is a new kind of insurance company. So we're built from scratch we're vertically integrated as we built every piece of technology but also all of the licenses we're not fronting for some old frumpy insurance company we built every element of the user experience down to the uh, um, insurance dimensions as well as the technological ones absolutely from scratch. And we started that in late 2015. We'll come to that, I guess, in, in a minute. And today, Zoom, five years forward, we have a million customers predominantly in the US, but we have launched in Europe as well. So we live now in Germany, in Holland, and in France as well. And we offer renter's insurance, homeowner's insurance, pet insurance, and life insurance. Um, and we keep adding new products. So it, it has been a, a pretty rapid Growth. You're talking about, you know, from standstill to about 200 million dollars in just over four years, and, and doubling every year. So that that as far, as long as we can keep that up, that gives you a sense of it. And it's built on a pretty different um, way of thinking than traditional insurance, perhaps because its founders know nothing about insurance. So we had to rely on what we knew, which is we went back and tried to ask ourselves the question: Why do we, and why does everybody else hate insurance? at a fundamental level, insurance is really a social good, right? Mathematically, it's about a pool of people coming together to share resources in order to help the weakest member in the hour of need. That is almost the textbook definition of a social good. But it's not how we think of insurance. The Insurance is something that is um, characterized by deep distrust. Nobody believes the insurance company is actually going to pay them when they need to. And the insurance company doesn't trust you on IOTA either. There's this kind of symmetrical relationship of distrust, which we found fascinating, just intellectually stimulating. Like, why is that? And why is it that when you talk about fraud in insurance, you use the word fraud and you use it in other contexts, but you mean something quite different from it? Because usually when a tech company or any company is worried about fraud, they're worried about some hacker from the East or from somewhere else breaking into their system, stealing their credit cards or, or something like that. And in insurance, the people who are committing fraud or not those people, it's people like you and me, people who are upstanding citizens in other aspects of their life, and something about insurance brings out the devil in them and gives them license to misbehave, indeed, to, to lie and to embellish in their claims. And we tried to, before founding Lemonade, try to get to the bottom of that. What is it about insurance that brings out the devil in people? And early on, as we were founding the company, I reached out, I really... Uh, badgered uh, two Nobel laureates, one in behavioral economics and one in game theory, and just left their messages until eventually they returned my call if I promised kind of to stop calling. And really tried to dig in and to understand what it is about insurance that is so counterintuitive and counter to its fundamental um, goodness. And what we discovered was that if I had to distill it down to one thing, it's a conflict of interest. It's the business model. It's something foundational. It's the fact that you pay me money in order to help you when you're, you have a kitchen fire. But if I pay you those £10,000, you're 10000 richer, I'm 10000 poorer. And if I deny your claim, I will end the year better off. And that creates all manners of ill. And that you sense, even if you can't put voice to it, you sense that there is this conflict, there is an asymmetry of information, there is an asymmetry of power, because I have your money and you don't. And all these things give us license to level the playing field. So you um, will embellish your claim, obviously not you, but one will embellish their claim.
1: I was like, wow, this guy's really done his research on me. Yeah.
0: And then the insurance company will suspect you of that which of which you are in fact guilty and will treat you like the criminal that you might just be. And then you resent that. And then this tit for tat uh, develops and this whole thing spirals onwards and downwards. So we founded Lemonade, as I say, from the ground up, but on a different business model. And we said, how can we build an insurance company that we would like to deal with? And what we ended up doing is saying, well, to do that, I have to take a flat fee. I have to at least at first blush, disassociate my financial incentives from whether or not I pay your claims. Now, I don't know how many claims there'll be this year. So you say, how can you possibly do that? And what we've done is establish a business where you pay me your premiums. And for every pound that you pay me, I tell you in advance, I'm going to keep 25 pennies on the pound. So 25% goes to me as a flat fee, as it were. Now, I don't know how many claims are going to come in, so I need two ballasts that are going to stabilize that twenty-five percent. One is called reinsurance, so we buy something called reinsurance, which basically says if there are more claims that would have eaten into our twenty-five percent, somebody else is going to pay those claims, and we we sell off that element of the risk to reinsurers. It's some neat financial engineering, if you like, that means that even if there are many claims, we don't get hit by those additional claims. And we have something called a giveback, a charitable giveback, where we say to you, if there's money left over at the end of the year, if it was a good year, not a bad year, and the, the results were more favorable than they might have been, then rather than keeping that money ourselves and profiting and being tempted to deny your claim in order to increase that percentage, we tell you right now that's going to charity. Hey, why don't you, Dan, choose a charity that's near and dear to your heart? And suddenly that changes everything. We've actually, from a game theory perspective, we've changed this from a two-person game to a three-person game. Now you've got the nonprofit in the room. I do not make money by denying your claims because I put that money out of my reach anyway. It's going to charity, so why would I screw you over in order to gain money that I don't keep? I'm not gonna do that. In fact, my incentives flip from denying your claim to paying it as quickly as I can so that I lower my costs and get the NPS hit and you'll tell your friends all about it. And your incentives might change as well. And this is really where the behavioral economics kicks in. Today, you're happy to embellish your claims because you'll stick it to the man. You've got a conflicted relationship with this nameless, faceless behemoth. But if you know that, and we do remind you of this when you make a claim, that embellishing your claim doesn't hurt the insurance company about whom you don't care. It hurts a charity about whom you do care. That may change your behavior as well. And that has created a whole new way of thinking about insurance. We end up paying claims very, very quickly because the final piece of the puzzle is you take that novel business model, those foundations that are unconflicted, that have social good built into them, that align our interests with those of our customers, and then you build a technology stack above that. Because as soon as my incentive isn't to deny a claim, it's to pay it quickly. Well, how do I use technology to do that? And we pay our claims incredibly fast. Our median time to pay a claim is a day and about a third of our claims are paid instantaneously on the spot algorithmically without any human intervention and we do the same thing when selling you insurance there's no brokers there's no paperwork there's no faxes it's a 90 second chat with a bot is that the median time to buy a policy on lemonade so really transforming the whole experience but not just the by sticking a technology layer in front of a technology facade in front of a 100-year-old edifice, but really going back down to the foundations and building the whole thing from scratch.
1: Okay, amazing. However, when I hear this, um, I can't help but think of the incredible war chest you'd have to have um, to pull off something like this. So it's one thing to have a big vision, and it's another thing, of course, to have the execution. But in a in a game like insurance, you also have to make sure you don't go uh, bust and you're... Calculations and measurements are as exact and precise as they need to be for your own safety, not just for good NPS hits. So this is now the perfect time to unpack how you built lemonade. So let's start from, I guess, the first question: the first year. So you've come out of this, you found shy, and then what? You're looking at like size of the market. What's wrong? Like, t- take us through it. Take us through a thought experiment of how uh, and the next genius might pull apart the market and build the next lemonade in, in another category.
0: So we didn't do what you might expect. What you might expect, the smart thing to do, um, is probably to learn something about insurance because neither of us had ever worked in insurance. We both had 20 years of entrepreneurship behind us in the tech field. Shai had founded Fiverr, another very successful uh, tech company. So we knew consumer-centric innovation. We knew technology. We knew sharing economy, but we did not know insurance. And through the serendipity of Peter mentioning some throwaway comment that kind of triggered things in my mind, we end up focusing on insurance, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. This is something that is 11% of GDP, $5 trillion worldwide, 100% household penetration. And you're like, wow, this has been hiding in plain sight. It's such a dull industry that nobody's noticed it, nobody's thought to tackle it. And like so many industries that uses scary words, actuarial stuff, funny bookkeeping, I remember being told it's it's so impenetrable that only Warren Buffett can invest in insurance because nobody can understand what's going on in insurance and people you know aren't you scared to take on insurance all that kind of stuff so it had this kind of scariness to it and one of the pieces also was tremendous capital you need a lot of capital so what Shai and I did is um, to start with we did not learn about insurance we actually pretty consciously resisted the temptation to look up insurance on Wikipedia and start reading. <laughs> And instead, we took some um, office space uh, with a whiteboard and we spent a couple of months um, just asking ourselves the question of, you know, first principles thinking, what do we not like about insurance? How would we build an experience that we felt good about? And we figured there's, we know there's a lot of actuarial stuff and, you know, we had probably high school probability theory or at least Shai did um, to kind of keep us somewhat uh, um, sensible. But, we didn't want to study about how insurance actually works because it's hard to unknow that kind of thing as well. And if you want first principles thinking, use your ignorance for all it's worth. And we really did that. So we sketched out on whiteboards and all that kind of stuff, how we thought a great insurance experience would be, what the business model would look like, et cetera. And frankly, that bears more than a passing resemblance to what we look like now, five years later, You know, a lot changed, but the core did not. And then when we emerged from that room, we went and spoke to some venture capitalists, um, some of whom we knew, some of whom we didn't. And it really was um, just the two of us and a PowerPoint. We, We hadn't developed any technology. We didn't have any licenses. We did have a couple of people who said they would join us if we got funded. Professor Dan Ariely, the eminent behavioral economist, joined us as a founding team member. Um, Ty Sagalo, who was uh, a well-known persona in the insurance world in America, said he'd join us as our chief insurance officer. So by that point, we had kind of the, the skeletal outline of what a core team could look like. And we went and raised $13 million in a seed round. Um, Sequoia and Aleph, the two funds that funded us, And you're right, this was, you know, Sequoia has been around since I think 1972, something like that. This was the largest seed round in the history of Sequoia. So you do need to raise more money than you otherwise would in a seed round.
1: And I'm also reminded at this point of the very famous anecdote of Picasso drawing that, you know, picture for the lady that stops him in the street and, you know... It like, took you 30 seconds, you know, that'll be 30,000 euros. And she's like, well, how how could it cost that much? It took you 30 seconds? Like, no, it's taken me 50 years or whatever it is. Very similar scenario with you guys, right? Which is you can't really be a college grad and come out and say, I'm going to disrupt insurance and we've done first principle thinking and this guy's a genius and this is how we'll do it and we need $13 million seed round because ultimately... Yes, you can be smart enough to unpick these things, but this is a game of execution as well. So there is a massive part to play here in both of your careers and both of your experiences. And all of the different things that will come from, you know, the attraction of of working with a Sequoia won't just go down into how you can disrupt an industry, but also the lessons you've learned and accumulated together at that point.
0: You're right, of course. And to be honest, we were fairly conscious of that. So when we were thinking about what kind of company did we want to build, we wanted to build one where where the barriers are really high, where we're cognizant that we may or may not clear the, the hurdle, but that if we don't, it means that it's really tough. And indeed, even if we do, maybe not everybody else can. So the gray hair would be an advantage. If you were founding a Pokemon Go Any college kid who has the idea can execute that. We did know that getting licensed by the great state of New York requires real gray hair, real money, real personas, real resumes. So part of our decision, which industry to go after and in what structure, the idea that we would actually establish insurance carriers, um, we felt would winnow out, would would kind of shrink the universe of potential competitors considerably. So that was something that we, we consciously did.
1: So you've taken $13 million from Sequoia. You've brought on board some amazing team members. What year was this and then what?
0: So it's still 2015, um, the summer of 2015. And then we we started working. So we incorporated, I think it may have been July or something of that year, and um, hired a team and started developing the technology while applying concurrently for our licenses. Both the licenses and the technology have a funny kind of story to them. The technology, we had a, a make versus buy decision. So um, a lot of people told us in general, we were advised by everybody, don't establish your own insurance carrier. You guys don't know insurance. Um, stick to your knitting. Partner with an insurance carrier and you do the technology stuff. That's what you guys know how to do. And we felt in our bones that that was not right and that there would be a really gla- a really low glass ceiling if we were beholden to some large insurance carrier. And I'm really glad we didn't.
1: And against your intentions to find all the hurdles.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, Although erecting hurdles that don't also add value doesn't really help you. You have to um, find things that really does change the the nature of the game. But both in foresight and definitely in hindsight, um, we felt that establishing our own carrier, owning the full stack, being able to build the business model that we wanted, the risk profiles that we wanted, understand the plumbing of insurance. We felt there was a lot of value there and maybe we'll come back to it, but I think we were right. But that meant going to New York in our case and and applying for a license, which was um, a saga I'll come to in a second. And then we had to start building the technology. And there again, people said, to us, listen, add value by all means, but don't build the stuff that's already been built. Here are 10 vendors that can offer you policy management and customer management, all these kind of things. And we went off and and Shai started meeting with all of these different vendors. And I remember him coming up really flummoxed and bemused from from these meetings. And I remember at one point, he says to me, Daniel, and they all told us these are 18-month implementations, multi million dollar license fees. And we felt, well, there must be so much that we just don't know in order to justify such a long development cycle, such a hefty price, which for us would have been exorbitantly expensive. And Chai comes out of the sixth meeting and he says to me, Daniel, either I'm just not getting it or I could code this thing on my Apple Watch while I'm driving home tonight. Now, (laughs) he couldn't quite do it on his Apple Watch while he's driving home tonight, but not far off. A team of five people stood up an entire policy management system in five months. So we had the basics, the user experience, the outline of what you said you saw and loved was ready pretty quickly. We kept adding to it, of course, you you get the basics, and then oftentimes you have to backfill a lot of the stuff that you cut corners on, and you get the product debt and and technical debt. But the license wasn't coming. And the thing with insurance is you can't beta test this stuff. You need a license and it needs to be a real product. You can't just launch it and, and hope for the best. You go to jail for that kind of thing. And the great state of New York was just ignoring our application. And I had an interesting moment where, I was sitting in our office in New York, 100 meters from the regulators who wouldn't meet with us even. And I got an emissary from 10 Downing Street. She had come to New York in search of companies that should really launch in the UK. And she said to me, Daniel, if New York's giving you a hard time, you'll be received with open arms in in London. Why don't you come? And so we developed a plan B, which was to launch in the UK. And I did come to London. And I was hosted in 10 Downing Street, which was a big deal for me. And I remember the pitch was a pretty compelling one, which is the United Kingdom is, you know, the, the great connector both to the United States and the gateway to Europe.
1: And where insurance comes from. Scotland, if I'm not mistaken.
0: And the seat of insurance, Lloyds of London. It's one of the great financial centers of the world. And they said to me at the time, listen, that the one thing next week, we've got this Brexit vote, but we'll just get beyond that and then all will be well. Famous last words.
1: Uh, I I actually forgot about Brexit. That's been and gone, right?
0: So things didn't quite, David Cameron at the time was optimistic and it didn't quite play out the way he'd hoped. And then in the meantime, we did manage to get, there's a whole chapter in a book written by a guy called Bradley Tusk. The book is called The Fixer about how we had to work to get New York to take us seriously and ultimately to give us a license but it was that was a near-death experience which ended well and we have a license we've got a great relationship with our regulators um, but that was genuinely tough and the whole company could have kind of died before it began if, if things hadn't worked out the way they did
1: what happens in something like that so let's just say that you do want to launch an outrageously ambitious company where the government, you know, or financial institutions have to be involved. How do you turn them from not paying attention to you to paying attention? Like, Are there tactics? Is it turning up? Is it letter every single day? Is it like he's mentioned a fixer? You know, is it like people that know people?
0: Yeah, so we rather naively for the first six months or whatever it was, um, felt that this is just a legal bureaucratic process. You have to submit your paperwork and wait like good boys and girls, and you'll get your response, and then you'll back and forth. And we met uh, this guy, Bradley Tusk, who became an investor and an advisor. And he said, no, 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 this is all politics. This is not uh, formalities, this is politics. The insurance regulation reports to the governor and the governor is, is an elected politician and you have to bring bring pressure to bear. And we felt at the time we had little to lose and everything to gain. And we spoke to the governor's office and the regulators and we said, listen, guys, we're, we are going to launch. If you respond to our application, we weren't asking them to cut corners or to do anything untoward, just to just to take us seriously, just to give us the time of day. And we basically said, you know, on this day, we've booked three speaking engagements, which I had. And we said, we're either going to speak about how New York is closed to business and to innovation, or we'll talk about how we're launching lemonade, And it's your choice. And by the way, here's the full page ad that we're taking out at the cost of $100,000 in the New York Times. And this is what it looks like. And here's the tweet that Sequoia plans to issue. And here's the change.org campaign that they plan to launch. And balls in your court. This is the date. This is when it all happens. And a day before that date, I got a phone call from the regulator saying we're we're ready to engage with you.
1: Amazing. That is fantastic. I'm so glad I asked, because you're about to move straight on. But you know, this is this is the crunch time. This is where the moments of great entrepreneurship hang on, you know, pivotal stories in a company's history. And there's always another way of finding out, you know, how to make that change and how to turn someone's mind. And yeah, sometimes the public pressure. And again, like, thank God you did have the capital because- being able to take out a $100,000 page ad is such an important high leverage opportunity for you. You know, those things can't go to waste and there's no point having the war chest on product and nothing on marketing if you can't leverage those those moments. So thank you for sharing. Okay, you've got your license. You're ready to roll. How big is the team?
0: Yeah, so we got the license ultimately in September of 2016 and launched a few days later. I think we had... 19 people on the team at the time, something like that. And we all got together in the same room in a WeWork in downtown New York and, and pressed the button. Uh, and we all had kind of bets going about how many policies would we sell on our first day. It ended up being 100 or 99 or something like that, which was higher than anybody dared hope for. And uh, we start off with renter's insurance and homeowner's insurance only in, in New York. Um, the United States, unfortunately, is 51 separate jurisdictions when it comes to insurance. Europe is not. Europe is one license gets you 31 countries. Um, but in the US, you get less. And guess which country is
1: not going to learn, <laughs> be part of that one anymore. Uh, anyway, Yes. back to you. Yes. <laughs>
0: So we started selling, and we got the the basics up and running. Customers coming in. It was it was as exhilarating as could possibly be. And as I say, you can't beta test this stuff. So you don't really know what to expect. And this all along, while you're building it, um, you do have this question: Will the dog eat the dog food? Have you are you solving a problem? You know, you, you spoke earlier about this pain point, and we we felt it, and we thought that we had empathically designed a product that would address it but we were holding our breath because we had no real world feedback to suggest that we were right as of yet. And fairly early on, we knew that we did, Um, that the word of mouth spread quickly, the reception was fantastic, the reviews, the press, consumers were all really uh, favorable to gushing. So it was just a huge sense of relief more than anything else that we'd raise all this money, hire these people, develop this technology, and it wasn't for naught. And then we started advertising and getting our Google AdWords and Facebook, and we started putting money behind it and started seeing the growth really kick off. And we went, over the next couple of years, we, we started getting licenses in other states, not yet internationally, but we started growing. During our first year, we got California and Illinois, and I think Texas, So some of the big kind of anchor states. We very much wanted to have the bookends of the United States, New York and California, the tech center, the finance center. And we felt we could fill in the middle um, as we go. And we saw rapid growth and the team had to grow very quickly. We kept having to hire. We went from zero to $100 million run rate in three years, which is breakneck speed and you know, unheard of in insurance. But even in the world of fast-growing tech companies, it's a little bit of an outlier. Slack achieved something similar, but not that many companies have. So, all of the challenges of growth, of growing at, during those years, 500% compounded annual growth rate, keeping the culture alive, adding peoples so that at any given time, most of the employees haven't been with you for a year, all those kinds of challenges. But it was an absolute thrill, raising money along the way so we could keep doubling down and developing new, new geographies, new products, et cetera.
1: The thing that I am just so in awe of when I speak to people like yourself is that speed of hiring and the gut instinct of knowing that these are the right people. Because, you know, a couple of my colleagues, I've, I've spent four or five months hiring that one role. And almost all my time as, uh, as the co-founder of Heights has literally been spent hiring, interviewing, hiring, interviewing, hiring, and obviously some legal admin. So... I just don't get it. As in, what is the trick that I'm missing? Is it experience? Is it you already knew loads of people that would be perfect for a bunch of leadership roles? I mean, I'd love to just unpack that. How you how you hire the right team and infrastructure for scale? Because definitely the thing I've still not mastered.
0: No, I don't know that we have any secret source on that. To be honest, so I, I wrote a blog post after our third year in market, and I, I so I don't know if this has changed in the last year, but. I, I checked and it looked like we had interviewed over 100 people, or, or at least reviewed resumes of over 100 people for every one person we hired.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that basically resonates exactly, which is why I'm, I just always am amazed at being able to hire hundreds of people, right? That's the thing. So I'm like, yeah, there's so much to consider. There's values, there's culture fit, there's ability to execute, there's growth, there's all of these things. So it's just hard to do those things sincerely and properly and get it right more often than not.
0: And I think for our case, certainly in the early days, we had a burning concern about we were melding two cultures. We were coming from the tech scene and the high-tech startups and all the stuff that characterizes a tech startup. But we were going into insurance and we needed to hire quite a few people who come from that world. And that is a very far removed kind of world. And I used to talk a lot in the early days about the black hole. I used to tell everybody, we have not yet achieved escape velocity from the insurance way of thinking. And we're going to keep having people, just like people told us, don't create your own insurance company and just use this software. And we're going to continuously be told to do things the old way. And we have to continuously be cognizant and on the uh, the lookout for those pieces of advice, because it would be the path of least resistance. And we have to resist it. And that also manifested in the hiring. How do you hire people out of the world of insurance who are massively... Um, accomplished and bring them on board to, to cut off the very branch on which they sat and to rethink the things that they've known no other way of doing things. And in the early days, in my job descriptions, I actually made a requirement. And you know, when you put all the requirements, one of them said, it literally said this um, midlife crisis. That was one of the requirements for the job. And I kind of said that if you're happy in the corner office of one of the large insurance companies, you're not right for us and we're not right for you. We need somebody who's sitting there saying, what the hell am I doing with my life? And they they should apply. And I remember when we announced some of our insurance hires, TechCrunch wrote a piece on it. And they said that they mentioned the names of the people that we hired. And it says, a lot of our readership won't know these people. But these are the Satya Nadellas and the Brins of the insurance world. And I went into the office and I showed it to the insurance guy. I said, "Hey guys, you've got to see this piece. You've been likened to Satya and to Bryn." And they look at me and they go, "Who's Who's Satya? Who's Bryn?" And, so <laughs> and that was kind of my moment. I realised, wow, how how far removed these worlds are from one another. But then you do get to a pace and to a place where I think you get to a critical mass, and there you start being attractive to a self-selecting group of people who apply and you have teams who have imbued the ethos of the place and can help find and recruit and onboard. And on some point, the culture becomes, I don't wanna say entirely self-sustaining, you can never be blasé about it, but it does get easier.
1: I just, I have to say, I'm, you know, I just like I've already said, but just incredibly impressed at the ability to scale teams that fast and during the last year as well. So we're going to come on to the last year where you decided to IPO and you did your your roadshow from this very room that we're talking to you in right now, which um, having spoken to many founders before who've had to do roadshows, much better, pleasant experience and probably a lot better for the planet because they had to get on planes every, it seems, 12 hours. And before we get onto the IPO, how much had you actually raised at this point? You know, putting you in a comfortable position, obviously, to satisfy the growth. What was your, um, well, I was going to say bank balance like, but you know, maybe I will stick with that as far
0: as you're willing to share. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's it's uh, uh, we we publicized public it. company, public company, and we publicized a lot of these things along the way. And frankly, when you're an insurance carrier, you're pseudo public before you're public because you're a regulated financial institution. You have to publish a lot of information that startups generally don't share. Um, we had raised over $400 million in answer to the question. Our largest investor still is uh, SoftBank, not the Vision Fund. They it must be it? delighted to, to actually have a win. Yeah, I, the, the tides have turned for them in general in the last few weeks. DoorDash and others have been very good for them. But yes, I'm, I'm thrilled that Lemonade was on the right side of the ledger for them and has been a, a handsome return to them so far. I have to say they've been spectacular investors to us and having them in our corner when you're up against insurance carriers with, you know, more money than God, and suddenly you turn up, it's kind of, you you feel like you're turning up to a gunfight with a knife, but suddenly when you've got SoftBank in your corner, um, that changes, that creates a real thud factor that... uh, um, I was going to
1: say, Sun has more money than God, doesn't he? So it's all right.
0: Exactly. So we were thrilled to have him in in our corner. That was very helpful. General Catalyst had invested in us beforehand. So we had in general a roster of not only deep-pocketed and supportive, but really fabulous investors who... We're all on our board, and, and I've all become really good friends to Shy and myself. We feel very privileged to have them um, on our side. They've been just spectacular. They really have.
1: So you've got a good war chest. Um, what's what's the logic in going public? Was that always the plan?
0: I'm not a, not a huge believer in plans. I, I do like planning, but...
1: Uh... Yeah, I, I used this on the other day, but the, the famous quote of um, the planning invaluable, the plans waste of time.
0: Yeah, so I do believe that. As we get bigger, um, the ability to forecast the future gets a little bit better because you have got more history to go on, but in the early days, it's a nonsense. In fact, it was one of my filters when we were going around to the early seed round and Sequoia and Aleph ended up investing, but any VC at the time who asked me for a five-year plan, I wouldn't take a second meeting with. I was like, okay, they just don't get it. And uh, yeah, that changes over time. As the business matures, you, you have more ability to forecast. Um, So I I wouldn't say that an IPO was always the plan, but it was always something that I I was open to. And I I developed an approach which really says it's good, it's healthy for companies, for small, young companies to IPO. And 2019 was meant to be a a blockbuster year for, for tech IPOs. It wasn't. Uber went public and all these other, and WeWork imploded and everything else, and it ended up... The IPOs of 2019 under-delivered relative to the market in a way not seen since 1995, so in a generation. And looking at that, I was trying to kind of figure out what, what was going on. Where did it all go so very wrong? And then I looked into it and found that some of the most iconic brands in, in the tech sector, you know, the, the Microsofts, the Apples, the Amazons, they all went public young. And they had to because there was no SoftBank. There was no huge endless pools of late stage venture capital that will give you multi-billion dollar checks. So if you wanted to keep growing, the public markets were the place to go. And those companies all went public at about their fourth year at about $100 million of run rate. Some more, some less, but spitting distance to where we were. And in fact, in 1999, the average age of a company going public was four years old. 10 years later, it was already 14 years old and the tables had really turned, and I wasn't sure that that was to the benefit of anybody. Sure, there was a lot of money available, and you could stay in the cozy cove of venture capital for longer, but it felt to me uh, kind of as a parent, you, you have this challenge of how much do you coddle your kids, and at what point do you want them to be exposed to the real world so that they grow up independent and strong and resilient? And I think that metaphor carries over to venture as well and i felt that looking at the class of 2019 without pointing fingers or naming names it reminded me a little bit of extended adolescence the 25 30 year old who is still at home still needs mummy and daddy and whose parents did him or her no favor by coddling them for as long as they did and these companies did all the growth in pri- in private oftentimes that led them to have not the best practices, not the best disciplines, not the best culture, a lot of bro culture and other kind of me too moments that came out of those companies as well. And then at some point, they heave themselves onto the public markets who have no interest in them at that point because they've they've burnt their opportunity with other investors. And therefore, they weren't rewarded by the IPO market. And therefore, they couldn't continue to grow with IPO money. And the, the feedback loop that had served Apple and Microsoft and Amazon so well of you go early you reward your public investors, you can then go back to them and continue to fuel your growth. They broke that cycle. So for all of those reasons, I felt that even though it's easier and it would have been cheaper, we could have raised more money for less dilution in the private markets. I'll tell you that to a certainty and with greater certainty. And yet we chose to go public while we had $400 million or more in the bank, we weren't doing it for the money. We were doing it because we think in 20 year increments, and when you ask yourself the question not, what's, not what is good for the next quarter or two quarters, but we want to build an iconic 21st century incarnation of an insurance company, what is the right platform upon which to do that? What will be the best long term train tracks upon which to, to launch this thing? And it has to be the public markets. You may get more dilution, there may be more volatility, and if you're prone to look at the share price that can drive you insane. But if you keep your eye on the prize, I, I think that that is the way to go.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, and it's interesting because 2020 has been the surprise breakout year for loads of tech firms. But you know, many of them have been going for a lot longer than four years. But then, I suppose their IPO prices have also been rewarded for that too.
0: And what a surprise that was! You know, we, we in January before COVID became a term that anybody had heard of, we got together with the bankers who ultimately took us public, and we said, okay. Q3 is probably the right time to try and go. For various reasons, we had various milestones we wanted to hit. So we said, okay, let's open calendars. March 24th, we'll have what's known as the org meeting, which is the kickoff meeting for for an IPO. And when March 24th came along, it seemed like the most ludicrous thing to even think of going public. The day before March 23rd, in retrospect, I can tell you was the low point in the stock market. The S&P was 35% off, NASDAQ was at 6,800 points. Everything had fallen day after day after day, and the sky was falling. And we sit there at this org meeting, and I feel so apologetical. I say, look guys, we we said we'd get together, so we're getting together. We'll kick this off because we said we'll kick it off, but obviously there's not going to be an IPO anytime soon. And little did we know that the next 50 days, that was actually that day turned out to be the turning point And the next 50 days were the best 50 days in the stock market's history. And suddenly the window was wide open. And we actually pulled in the date and ended up going public earlier than we'd even planned to. So one never knows. It's been a crazy year.
1: Like you said, plans useless. (laughs) You'll know the UK is the home of Wimbledon, 007 and good old fish and chips. But did you know it's also the home of insurance? Yup, lemonade may have started in New York, but the insurance industry was started by Edward Lloyd in 1688 at his coffee shop right here in the heart of London. You just can't build businesses without it. From the brain health supplements we make at Heights to self-driving cars. In fact, even this podcast, we all have insurance. And that is where our latest partner comes in, Deloitte. Their InsureTech team helps organizations of all sizes navigate the centuries-old industry that's being revolutionized by tech. From launching in new countries to designing new insurance products or revamping a tech stack, if you've got an insurance problem that you think technology can solve, check out Deloitte. Now, back to someone who's got his cover all sorted, Lemonade CEO Daniel Schreiber. We've got an understanding of the story. And thank you very much for sharing like the journey of Lemonade. So the last part of the interview is just to understand a little bit more about you and things that you've learned in your career. And also, I know you're quite an outspoken person, like I've said, um, follow you on LinkedIn. Most recently, the thing that you said was, you know, you're going to encourage 100% of your employees to get COVID vaccinations. And you think that every, um, every CEO should. Um, obviously, a controversial statement, but I'd love to know where it comes from. What's, what's the thinking behind it?
0: I don't think I'll say anything that will be new or surprising or particularly profound, but I do feel like we're experiencing at a global level uh, a setback or a regression in terms of just understanding facts and factfulness and truth with a, you know, a little T um, and how decision making should be made. Um, we've spent you know the last 400 years clawing our way out of the dark ages developing methodologies for sieving fact from fiction Uh, um, and then facebook came along then facebook came along um, the political dynamics in the u.s which uh, um, alternative facts and and all that kind of stuff as if it's facts or just opinions so i'm I, shy. we are, are cognizant of that. We've tried to build a company with a culture that is very data-driven. Statistics is the very core of all insurance. In the early days when people would say to us out of the insurance industry, oh, this feels like this, or we tend to do that, or we've really created a culture where we just don't accept that as a line of reasoning. You, you bring facts to the discussion, and if you don't have them, then you create tests in order to generate facts, um, but that's how we make decisions. COVID has just been, you know, obviously massively disruptive on on a global level. And I've been tracking with with bated breath the stunning success of science in cramming 10 years' worth of vaccine development into 10 months and everybody just lining up, the scientists and the pharmaceutical companies and the regulators, and they managed. And then to read that anything from 40 to 60 to 70% of the population says, "Nah, I don't trust that was just shocking to me. People are dying at the moment. It's you know the dark, dark point of, of this whole pandemic, but people are dying at the rate of 500 per hour. In three months of this pandemic, a million lives will be lost. Now, up until now, I, I have not envied our leaders who have to choose between so many different evils, shutting down this and shutting down that, and how do you balance the lives lost versus school years and kids being in school and the lonelier, loneliness of old people and all these things. But suddenly you have a vaccine that can relieve you of that horrible dilemma where, where whatever you choose to do is too little of something and too much of something else. And then for people to with a blasé nonchalance say, I don't trust it without reading the articles, without doing the hard work, without understanding the data, just seem to me kind of unforgivable. It's like, if you've got a real reason, fine, but otherwise for goodness sake, there's a, a chance for all of us to end this. And I think that companies are in, and CEOs are in a position of influence and to some extent a position of power. And it is, I think, within my rights to say, I don't want people bringing a communicable disease into the office, particularly if they can easily avoid it by just rolling up their sleeves and, and getting a, a jab. Um, and there better be a good reason if they're not willing to do that. They better be in some risk group that I'm not aware of or, or have some exotic religious belief that is not one of the mainstream beliefs because most religions are in favor of vaccination. Um, and I do think that leaders need to stand up and, and say that And anti-vaccine or just a broad unease about vaccines isn't a good enough excuse when there's this much on the line.
1: Thank you very much for sharing. And uh, I know, you know, you've got strong opinions, uh, you know, I, I guess in this sense, strong opinions, strongly held. But I guess, you know, in sense is to be a really strong leader, often you need strong opinions loosely held. So just to delve into that for a moment, what are some good examples of uh, times in your career where, you know, you've made a grand statement, you know, it might be to your team, it might be to a colleague, and um, frankly, you've been proven wrong. And how do you deal with that kind of ego damage when the role of the CEO is to kind of come with the facts and, and be confident in what you're saying?
0: Come with the facts and being confident with what you're saying aren't synonyms. I think the role of the CEO, more than anything else, is a storyteller. And to it starts off, you know, J.K. Rowling has to have a vision of Hogwarts. And it starts off with that. You have to have a vision of something that doesn't actually exist today, but you think might, unlike Hogwarts, might exist one day. And then you have to tell the story in a way that makes it tangible to your audience, that they can see it, they can smell it, they can touch it, they can feel it, and they have clarity of purpose of the destination that they're going towards. I, I think job one of a founder CEO is storytelling. Oftentimes people oh, you are telling stories, it sounds like you're trivializing things. I don't trivialize it. I put that on a pedestal as job one. You never wanna lie or, or give people a false understanding. It, this is where we want to go. I'm not saying that we absolutely will get there. There is a decent chance of failure along the way you know, the odds are actually stacked against us, but wouldn't it be amazing if we managed to overcome those odds? So I do try not to set expectations that, that are fanciful and also not to, not to lie. And when I know that something is high risk, I'll stand in front of the team. I actually do every quarter. I tell the entire company what our goals are going to be for the quarter. We have a, a methodology known as OKRs, objectives and key results. And I tell them that I'm expecting about a 30% failure rate that we're always going to set ourselves goals that may be not entirely achievable. And then I'm accountable to them. And I stand up every quarter and say, this is where we managed, this is where we failed. And this is why we failed. And this is what we've learned from it. So I I fail a lot. I fail often. And sometimes it's on stuff that I saw coming and sometimes it isn't. I don't think that undermines leadership. I honestly don't. I I feel quite comfortable with that. Maybe I'll make make a a broader point. You didn't quite ask me this, but I, I think it fits into the segment. I think there's a stupendous amount of luck involved in all of these things. Um, One of the things that I've come to believe um, over the years with increasing certainty is that a lot of stuff is uncertain and that there's a lot of serendipity. And I think the luck comes in in two levels, if you like. One is, um, you know, we've spoken about the journey of lemonade. There were so many forks in the road and the stars aligned, and we managed to get the funding that we needed, and we managed to get the license. And I met Shai, and we launched before the competition, and we came up with the right name, and it was available, and all these we managed the IPO window open. The stars aligned for us, we had a lot of luck, a lot of serendipity, and it could have played out differently. One of the folks who invested in us in the seed round invested in my first startup in the 90s. He lost all his money back then. He's made something like 50 to 100 times a return on his money right now. I may have learned things along the year, but I may be 10% better, I'm not 100 times better. Um, And the results are out of all proportion to whatever I've learned. And there's a chaos in the system. And small changes can have outlandishly big results for good and for bad. And I could could have fallen flat on my face and we've had what is so far been a spectacular success. And the distance between those two can be stunningly small, and the the temptation in retrospect to attribute it all to all those smart things you you did, I think misses a lot of the the luck and serendipity and and good fortune. And I think the good fortune runs deeper though, because even those things that are attributable to skill and wisdom and experience, and I don't dismiss those, those are important, then you ask yourself the question, well, where did that come from? Where did you get that, those skills and that wisdom and, and that experience? Well, it's a combination of nature and nurture. You know, that's the totality of us. And I didn't choose my nature and I didn't choose my nurture. So I was kind of, both of those are accidents of birth. Um, so I, I do reject the myth of the self-made man. I, I think that there's so much, as I say, that is down to good fortune in the community and family and all of that. So. I approach what I do with um, a deep sense of of humility, pride and joy and all of that, but also um, a deep appreciation that it could have been very, very different. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Daniel. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dan. Next week on Secret Leaders. If you think about sport, it's really simple. Sports are games. You know, often it's like ball in net, ball over net it's some sort of game. And at the end of the day, you know, they're sports, are very serious, you know, there's physical, but they're games. And the reality is that games, as in the ones that we play on the computer, are like super engaging, and they're much more engaging in some ways than some of these like physical sports or, or games.
1: Next week on Secret Leaders, we have the founder of the world's number one esports team, Fnatic. That's Sam Matthews, whose rather long and quite bizarre journey building up their team into the world leader today really is quite the ride. Tune in or you'll miss out. If you'd like to hear more leadership stories, we now send a weekly email newsletter. It takes less than a minute to read and provides some enjoyable factoids about great leaders so you can impress people with your knowledge and maybe even become a better leader yourself. You can sign up at our website, secretleaders.com. This episode was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta. I encourage you to follow me on social at Dan Murray-Serta for all sorts of stories on mental health and entrepreneurship. But we've also got our social channels at Secret Leaders back up and running now too. So go follow us there, particularly our brand new YouTube channel where you'll be able to see interviews just like today's on video. If you enjoyed today's episode, screenshot and tag us to share the episode or tweet us, it means a lot. And if you really loved it, why not review us please too? It only takes a second. This episode was produced by Rich Martell with editing done by Harry and Daniel at Lower Street Media, artwork by Charlie Stopford and bringing it all together, our head of podcast, Will Stollerman.